Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles together to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We have a rather long pericope to cover this morning, 13 verses, Luke 12, 22 through 34. You remember that the setting of chapter 12 of Luke's Gospel is in the region of Judea, the southern part of modern day Israel. Jesus has rebuked the Pharisees sharply for their religious hypocrisy and now he is surrounded by throngs of onlookers but instead of addressing the crowds, He's speaking directly to his inner circle of disciples. The first thing he does with those disciples is to warn them about the persecution they're about to face. He knew that uh, the Pharisees now were determined to kill him and he said to them later that the servant's not greater than his master. And so he wanted them to be aware that they would certainly face similar sorts of hostility and persecution. But he told them not to fear that the Holy Spirit would not abandon them in their time of testing. And after warning them of the danger that was coming from the outside, he next warns them of the internal danger of a heart of greed. He illustrated the danger of greed with a parable. It was the parable of the rich farmer, as you recall, who had a bumper crop, but he entrusted his well-being to his riches rather than God. Jesus called him a fool because he hoarded his wealth and was not rich towards God. In our text this morning, the Lord continues on that theme of treasure and trust. So let's read our text, Luke 12, beginning in verse 22. And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat or what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now within these 13 verses, Jesus establishes a prohibition against worry for his disciples. He said, which one of you by worry can add a a single day to your life? The original Greek says a single cubit, which was taken to mean the smallest increment of measurement time or distance. I remember when I was a young man, uh, I was sort of a late bloomer and I was short and I always wanted to be taller. And 
remember my dad saying to me, you can't add a single inch to your height by worrying about it. So, so worry is futile, it's vain. In fact, science tells us it has the opposite effect. Stress is a great uh, deterrent to a long life. And so this is a prohibition that he establishes. More accurately, he sets a series of prohibitions. Three times in these 13 verses, he says in various ways, don't worry. Verse 22, he says, do not be anxious because life is more than food or clothing. That is, life is not just the physical, it's also the spiritual. Verse 29, he says, do not keep worrying. He says, because that's what the nations do. The nations, meaning the Gentiles, the pagans, in other words, spend their lives trying to get more and accumulate with little or no thought about their soul. He says, you don't do that. Verse 32, he says, do not be afraid because God is your father and he can be trusted. In reality, we have the same prohibition stated three different places and three different ways. Now, now when someone says to you, don't worry about it, that doesn't carry much weight. It's a throwaway phrase when we don't know what else to say. There, there's no compelling reason given why she, we should not worry. But that's not the case with Jesus. When he says, don't worry, he tells us why such anxiety is a waste of time. I often remind us here that when we read a section of scripture, we need to ask certain questions of the text. And the first question I ask of any text that I read is, what does it tell me about God? Now, there's something that I've noticed about a lot of modern preaching, and that is this. God seems to be a secondary character at best. The question that modern preaching seems to ask is, what does this text say about me? Rather than asking, what does it say about God? And the result is what we call anthropocentric preaching. That is man-centered preaching. It's all about us. But Jesus' style of teaching and preaching was thoroughly theocentric. It was God-centered. And that's what we all should aim at. And so he doesn't say to his disciples, I'm going to give you 10 steps to cure anxiety. Rather, he simply proclaimed one principle and truth, and he said it in a variety of ways. And the principle is this, God is trustworthy. And if you don't remember anything else the pastor said today when you leave here over lunch, I hope you remember that he said over and again, you can trust God. That is the overarching message and principle of this text. So if you trust God, you don't need to be anxious. So in an attempt to follow our Lord's teaching style, I titled the message today, The Trustworthiness of the Father. And so that principle is illustrated in a wonderful way by Jesus here in this text. Throughout the passage, Jesus illustrates why God can be trusted. He begins by using the simple example of nature. <clears throat> now this is the pattern throughout the scriptures. The Bible says that God has revealed himself in two fundamental categories what we call natural or general revelation. It's called general revelation because it's available to everyone, regardless of their religious affiliation, no matter what hemisphere they live in or what continent they live in. Anyone can look up at the stars at night and be wowed and awed by the power and creativity of God in his natural revelation. And then his special revelation through his word and through his dear son. And so likely, as Jesus is teaching, he's doing so outside. Perhaps it's a beautiful spring day. The birds are flying about. The wildflowers are blooming on the hillsides opposite them. So Jesus takes the opportunity, I take it, to use nature 
as a classroom. And he says in verse 24, consider the ravens. Maybe a flock of them just flew over and he points and says, consider the birds. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Now, here's the point. Here you have the, the two basics of nature, a bird and a wildflower. And both of them are supplied, marvelously so, by the Lord. They don't worry. They don't have anxiety. They don't worry about retirement. And yet God clothes them in the case of the wildflower more splendidly than any suit of clothing Solomon, the richest man that ever lived, ever had in his closet. Now all created life can be divided into two categories. Fauna, which is animal life, and flora, which is plant life. And Jesus takes an example from each category. He first affirms God's care and provision over plants and animals. Now the animal activists would like to tell us that there is no qualitative difference between human life and animal life. I've even heard about some activists now that tell us when we mow our grass in the summer, we are assaulting vegetation. But amazingly, Many of these same people don't bat an eye when a human baby is aborted. The Bible pronounces woe and judgment to those who call evil good and good evil. Just this week, a female legislator in Virginia put forward two bills on the same day. The first bill called for legalizing abortion right up until the moment a woman would give birth. And the second bill, its irony escaped her she put forward a bill to prohibit the spraying for canker worms in the state of Virginia, lest the population of canker worms be decimated. That's why I called for you this morning to pray for mercy. We need God's mercy upon our land. And so what Jesus is doing here is not comparing animal and plant life to human life. He is contrasting it. The point is, that if God provides for the birds of the field and the flowers of the field, which are much less valuable than humans. Now you need to know why birds and flowers are not as valuable as humans. Because God never said of birds and flowers or any other animal species or plant species that I made you in my image. Man is made in the image of God. Now there's all sorts of conversations we can have about what that means. But fundamentally, man is different from any other form of life in that man has an eternal soul. God has made it so, and he values human life over all other forms of life. But more than that, specifically, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, those he refers to as his friends and sons of the Most High. If God provides for nameless birds and plants, can't he be trusted to provide for his elect, those he calls his friends? Now, if we take that question to his logical conclusion, if God the Father goes to the lengths of sending his own son to die for his children, can't he be trusted to make sure they have food and clothes? The obvious answer is yes, he can. 
And if he can be trusted, that makes all worry, all anxiety, all fear over God's providing those things an exercise in futility and a colossal waste of time. And so to summarize the point, Jesus makes one of the greatest and most precious promises in all the Bible. The promise that he proclaims is this, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Now that conjunction but is almost always used as a strong transition. It's putting into contrast that which came before it to that which will follow. And so he said, don't seek the things of the world, don't seek the physical only, the pagans run after these things. Now he contrasts that, but you, I take it, are to seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Well, let's practice what we've preached about hermeneutics. Let's ask a question about that verse. What does it mean then to seek first the kingdom? Well, I think it means of highest priority, of greatest importance, to a Christian is that we seek the kingdom. But what does it mean to seek the kingdom? Well, at least three things. You could probably add others. First, it means to prioritize the spiritual over the physical. What we must never forget as believers is that we are both a soul and a body. My wife is faithful every day to teach our children the catechism. She has hundreds of questions theologically that she asks them and one of the questions, I've heard them answered a hundred times in our home, have you a soul as well as a body? And I ask you today, have you a soul as well as a body? And if the answer is yes, and if you're a human being, it is yes, we need to prioritize the spiritual over the physical. That's what Jesus said earlier on in this chapter to his disciples as it related to persecution. He says, don't fear the one that can kill the body only, but fear the one that can kill the body, that's the physical, and cast the soul, the spiritual, into hell. When I speak to a young person in my office about salvation, not just a young person, a person of any age, I will remind them that they're more than a body. And I, I'm a great illustration when I'm sitting in front of a child that the body wears out. And I'll say, see that little picture over there? That's when I was eight years old. I don't look like that anymore. I can't run and play like that anymore. The body wears out in an amazingly quick fashion. And so if you spend all your energy and your time, as so many people do, don't they? Doing surgeries that make the body look younger than it really is and trying to prolong the inevitable. And there's nothing wrong with taking care of the body. But we must, as Christians, prioritize the spiritual over the physical because the physical is temporary and the spiritual is, etern is eternal. And that's the second point. To, to seek first the kingdom is to prioritize the eternal over the temporary. How foolish it would be to invest one's life savings in a pair of blue jeans. Something after 30 washings is bound to wear out. We tell people to invest in precious metals, those things that last longer. Well, Peter says that even the precious metals one day will melt with fervent heat. And so in a similar way, it's foolish to invest only in the physical to the neglect of 
the spiritual, to invest in the temporary, to the neglect of the eternal. To seek his kingdom also means to prioritize intimacy with Christ over everything. To do whatever is necessary to spend time with the Lord. Do you remember the two sisters, Mary and Martha? They're a great illustration of this. And Jesus would often stop by their home when he was uh, near Bethany where they lived. And, and they, he, he would come in and one of them would be in the kitchen breathlessly trying to get supper ready and serving all of the guests. And the other would be sitting at the feet of Jesus just listening, just worshiping. And Jesus says that one that sat at his feet and worshiped and listened chose the better part which would not be taken from her. She prioritized intimacy even over service. And so that's what it means to seek first his kingdom. And his precious promise is if you will do that, if in your life you will prioritize the spiritual over the physical, the soul over the body, if you will prioritize the eternal over the temporary, if you will prioritize intimacy with Christ over everything, he promises to meet your physical needs. These things, he says, will be added to you. What things? The things that you know you have to have to survive. Look, Jesus has lived this life. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be cold. He knows what it is to not have a place to lay your head at night. He knows we need these things. He wants to give us these things, but he wants even more for us to draw near to him. Now, just as a side note, he wants to meet our needs, not necessarily all of our wants. And for those of us who grew up, as many of us did here in this country, a place of abundance, many of us find it hard to distinguish between a need and a want anymore. A need becomes anything I want, but that's not the case. Human needs are very few, aren't they? Food, clothing, shelter, basically, that's all we need. Everything else is really a luxury. Needs are few, and he's promised to meet those needs. This is a providence that he has predicted. God's providence, the root word, of course, is to provide. And in God's providence, he has promised to meet our needs. Now, let me just add a few caveats to that. That doesn't mean we won't have to work. He's not saying go spend all your time down at the church or in the prayer chapel and when you get home the cupboard's going to be full of groceries. It's not what he's saying. He's saying if you will prioritize the spiritual over the physical and the eternal over the temporary and intimacy with Christ over everything else, he will provide the means for your needs to be met. And often, in fact I would add almost always, the means that he provides for a Christian to have their needs met is through their work. He gives us a mind for business or he gives us a healthy body that's able to work in exchange for wages. And we can take those wages or that profit from our business and meet our own needs of food, clothing, and shelter, those of our family, and help those who are unable to help themselves. That's the Lord's economic strategy in a nutshell. He doesn't promise us we'll be wealthy. Don't you believe the slick preachers on TV that tell you if you seek first the kingdom, that means he's going to make you wealthy or he's going to make you healthy. That's not at all what this means. He simply promises to provide for your needs. What does Paul say? My God will supply your what? Needs. 
through Christ Jesus. Now, all of this, all of this chapter really, is about why God's children need not fear. He says it in many ways and in different places. Don't fear, don't be anxious, don't worry. And we have covered what I would consider the easy part. So you ready for the hard part? Let's go down to verse 32. He says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. That's not the hard part. Here's the hard part. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Overcoming fear is the theme of Luke 12. He says, first of all, overcome the fear of men. He knows that to be a disciple of his is going to mean persecution. Paul told Timothy, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus are going to be persecuted. Jesus said, a servant's not better than his master, but he's saying, don't be paralyzed by fear because God has made a promise to you that he'll never leave you or forsake you. Fear God and you don't need to fear anyone or anything else. Because God is greater than anyone or anything else. Now, when it comes to persecution, specifically, what do we fear? Well, we may fear the pain of torture. That's a very real possibility. We may fear the emotional pain of separation from our loved ones, family members, and church family. We may fear the emotional rejection of the culture, the being margin, marginalized and pushed to the edges. We may fear death because that may be the logical conclusion of the harshest form of persecution. But Jesus says, don't even fear that. Don't fear the one that can kill the body because they kill your body, you're going to heaven. Fear the one that can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. And then he moves, remember, to another kind of fear, and that is the fear of generosity. You say, where in the world does he talk about the fear of generosity? Well, we studied it last week. The fear of generosity is just the flip side of greed. What greed is, essentially, remember greed is the untoward accumulation of more than it is necessary or required. But what greed ultimately is, is an expression of the fear of generosity. I hoard because I'm afraid I won't have enough. Financial planners have seized upon this fear. Almost every commercial, if you'll watch it or read it in a magazine article about retirement, pounces upon the fear that I'm told almost all working people have is that they're going to outlive their money. If they retire, they may outlive their savings and that's their biggest fear. Well, we are told to be wise. We're told to consider the end and put away some for the future, but we're also told not to worry, not to be fearful or full of anxiety. That's what lost people do. And so Jesus tells us, beginning in verse 32, how we can overcome the fear of generosity. In a positive way, how can we become rich towards God without fear? 
Well, he says in verse 32, do not be afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of generosity, of being rich towards God. And he says, do not be afraid, little, fro- little flock. Your father rejoices to give you the kingdom. Now, now, that verse tells us a number of things about a Christian's relationship to God. Number one, it tells us we are precious and valuable to him. Little flock is a term of endearment. It reminds us of the 23rd Psalm. Jesus, uh, excuse me, David said of himself that he was a sheep and God was his shepherd. Jesus in John 10 said he was the good shepherd and we are the sheep of his pasture. He won't lose one of us. But, but little flock is a, a precious term. If you don't believe that, go to your mechanic and call him a little lammy pie. <laughs> he won't appreciate it. But if you say to your young daughter, hey, lammy pie, she knows that is reserved for one that is precious and valuable to her father. Jesus says that we are precious and valuable. Not only does this tell us that we're valuable to him, it tells us that he's the king. Read on in verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Who rules over kingdoms? Kings. And kings are sovereign. They have power and they have authority. And so we don't have to fear being generous because the one we serve is sovereign and he can allocate his resources as he sees fit. But there's one more word here. He says he's our father. And so put that all together. He says you're so precious that he calls you his little lamb. He is the king and the king happens to be your father. He is predisposed to provide all the things that we need. And when we understand those concepts is that he loves us, we're valuable to him, he is the king and he is their, our father, it casts out fear and anxiety and worry about the future, including the fear of generosity, lest we outlive our savings. But it's even greater than that. It's not just that he is the king and he can meet our needs. That's true. He wants to meet our needs as our father. He says he has chosen gladly to give us the kingdom. Please don't think of God as a miser or a grinch where we have to pry from him the blessings and the necessities of life. He has an open hand. And he rejoices in meeting the needs of his children, even as a good parent rejoices in meeting the needs of their own children. We're we're talking about the freedom from the fear of generosity. He's calling us to be givers, not takers. But, But someone in the audience might object, but I don't have any money to give. How can I be rich towards God and the people of God when I don't have any money to give? Jesus has the solution for that. He says in verse 33, sell your possessions and give the the money to charity. Remember we said as we talked about that foolish farmer who collected and collected and put his feet up and says, I'm going to live a long time and have a long unproductive retirement. Jesus called him a fool because he was not rich towards God. One of the ways we can be rich towards God is to get rid of some stuff. Have you ever made pronouncements you had to take back later? I have made a many. 
And I remember when we got married 16 years ago, I said to my wife, we had moved into a 600-foot apartment over on Borland. And I loved it. One bedroom, one kitchen, and a little den. We could put the, the plug in the wall and the vacuum cleaner and do the whole house and never have to move the plug. <laughs> You're talking about a simple life, and it was great. We loved it. And I said to my wife, I said, honey, we will never be one of those people that accumulate stuff and have to pay other people to keep our junk. And you know what happened a few years later? I made the walk of shame down to the local storage unit and paid a man two months rent for a little 10 by 12 cubicle to put my junk in. And you know what, we put that away and I forgot about it. We made the mistake of putting it on an automatic draft. And about three years later, I was looking through the bills and I see this $80 bill and I said, honey, what is this? He goes, oh, that's the storage unit you rented. Really? I said, do you remember what we put in there? No, do you? No. It's $80 a month. It's been three and a half years. That's several thousand dollars. We better have a gold bar in there. <laughs> and so I went down and opened up that unit for the first time in a couple of years. And you know what I found in there? Junk. Stuff that collectively might have been worth $80. <laughs> and so I rented a pickup truck and we cleared that thing out and I haven't paid another penny on that. And that was a hard lesson to learn, but, but the lesson is this, if we're not careful, we'll start living our lives just like lost people. We'll fill our lives with possessions and things, and we won't intend to, it's just we sort of attract stuff. And Jesus says, sell that stuff and give it to charity. And you say, well, that must be a metaphor. He really doesn't want us to do that. I don't think so. You remember after the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved in one day and were baptized. And the Bible says that after that, the Lord was adding daily to the church such as were being saved. In Acts 4, 25, it says, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now this isn't the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was told to go sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Christ knew that those possessions we're standing between him and his willingness to follow Christ. He's talking to his disciples now, and he's saying, simplify your life so that you can value the spiritual more than the physical. It's, it's, it's almost exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter two about Jesus. He says, let this mind or this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus, that is an attitude of humility. And he says, Jesus didn't hold on to his place in heaven with clenched fist. He didn't grasp it, but he emptied himself. We call that passage in Philippians to the kenosis passage, which means to pour out. He willingly emptied himself of the glories of heaven so that he could take on human flesh and fulfill the will of the Father. He says, let that attitude or mind or lifestyle be in you. Don't hold on to your possessions tenaciously. Because when you do, you're investing in the here and now rather than the future, the physical rather than the spiritual, the temporary rather than the eternal. And that is the essence of foolishness. And I can tell you by experience that when you start taking this seriously, 
what you find is that when you start giving away, even when you're afraid, yes, you're going to sometimes that, that first time you do it, have a quivering hand. But if you'll do it, even when you're afraid, God will show himself faithful. If you will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things you need are going to be provided. And what's going to happen over time, opening your hand to the needy and to the needs of the church is going to become a way of life rather than a one-time event. And what's going to happen the change you're going to see is not necessarily your net worth statement. The change you're going to see is in your heart. Your heart is going to move from a place of anxiety and fear and trepidation to a place of joy. That's what he means when he says in verse 34, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Your heart is a barometer of your joy. And so wherever you take joy and pleasure is, is the thing that you value. And, and what will happen is that you will value giving in a way that you used to value receiving. In fact, doesn't the Bible say something about it is more blessed to give than to receive? That, that's not a hyperbolic statement. That is true. And many of you have learned to experience that. He will give you a heart that rejoices when you get a chance to give. In fact, doesn't the Bible also say that the Lord loves a cheerful giver? And all that means is a person who learns to give the way he gives. Again, look at verse 32. He says, don't be afraid of being generous, little lambs, those that I love, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. He rejoices in meeting your needs. He wants you to rejoice in being the conduit, the vehicle by which he meets the needs of other people. May the Lord grant it so for every member of this church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, we've talked about some personal things today when we talk about finances and personal property and possessions. It's uncomfortable for the preacher. It's uncomfortable for the congregation. And Father, sometimes discomfort is what we need to move us from where we are, to get the momentum moving again. And Father, I pray for perhaps some in this congregation who have come to a dead stop when it comes to generosity. As we look at what's happening in the culture We've become fearful of what might happen, fearful of future persecution. Jesus says, don't fear. The Holy Spirit will give you what to say in that very hour. Maybe some of us have become fearful about being generous. Maybe we're tempted to hoard and put away for ourselves because we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what the future holds, but uh, praise God, we know who holds the future. Our God is sovereign. He sits in the heavens. He does whatsoever he pleases. And what pleases him is to give his precious lambs the kingdom. Father, I thank you for your exceeding great and precious promise that if we will seek first your kingdom, that is to prioritize intimacy with you over everything else, 
prioritize the spiritual over the physical and prioritize the eternal over the temporary. You have promised to give us the things we need to sustain life. We trust you, Lord. Help our unbelief, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.